Welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. And me, Reverend Terry Menevigal. Hi, my name is Lynn R. And you're listening to the Outlander Soul podcast, where we look at the Outlander series by Diana Gabaldon through a theological, religious, and spiritual lens and talk about the story's meaning in our lives. Yeah, this is season two, episode five. So first couple episodes, we spent time on uh, Jamie's interior life, his prayers and his, his Celtic spirituality. Yeah. And then episodes three and four, we spent on sexual violence in Outlander, looking specifically at Jamie's experience of rape in the first book and kind of the aftermath as we see in, in subsequent books and sort of biblical texts in relation to sexual violence and, and what that means for us as readers. Yeah. And so now yeah. we're actually looking just at the Bible and Outlander more generally. However, there's so much in Outlander. There are so many references, so many quotes in there that it's kind of hard to take one big lump of them <laughs> and say, and this is what it means in reference to the Bible, yeah. um, because the Bible is obviously rather dense and packed with lots of different stories from lots of different times, from mm-hmm. lots of different people and lots of different experiences. And we've got eight rather hefty pithy books as well Mm -hmm. so what we wanted to do is maybe pull out themes yeah full themes yeah that are that that diana has given us in the books yeah and and kind of frame some of the biblical references in those themes yeah so you know while there's a big huge wad of of biblical references there are loads yeah so many we wanted to pick out a few themes to make it at least digestible because you know how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time so we're gonna take this yeah we're gonna take this elephant (laughs) i mean we could we could just do kind of a survey and go through them book by book on page 14 you know like (laughs) but but that would just that would just be ridiculous and probably not very helpful it would be and if we well it's not ridiculous in the sense of i think it's all you but that would be better suited probably for like a wiki page of kind of just a list of cross-references and probably right. somebody has done that but I, I don't I haven't found it if you have call us yeah. we want to talk to you <laughs> want to know. we say this a lot <laughs> <laughs> but we want to talk to you if, if if you are seriously if you are doing this work we want to talk mm. to you because we're doing this work and we think that we could collaborate and do great work together. So if you're doing this work already, scholarly biblical work or scholarly religious work in general, we would love to. Or you you know what, if you're just a super fan and a bit of a nerd and (laughs) and you've wanted to sort of make this list and you were, then we're happy to bless you and use your stuff and give you credit. Absolutely. (laughs) The concordance, the concordance, the biblical concordance of Outlander. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? It would be great if somebody did that. It would be. (laughs) But before we get started, we want to double back on a couple of episodes ago mm-hmm. when we were talking about Jamie's spirituality and, in, and specifically Celtic spirituality. Mm-hmm. Jamie, you, Jamie, mm-hmm. not Jamie Fraser, mm-hmm. <laughs> discovered in the Fiery Cross mm-hmm. that at the end, as they're preparing for war, there's like a comparison of prayers. Yeah. There's... As they make this preparation. 
it's this amazing amalgamation, which you know I had I had marked kind of in my in my research and sort of rigorous reading as you know this is an important thing, but but just in the context of kind of how we've laid out this season, I think it's a really interesting kind of segue from. Well, not only from the conversation we had around Jamie's Kel- or the Celtic spirituality that's in the series, to also you know talking about Jamie's prayers and his interior yeah. life, but then also how we talk about the Bible and how Outlander is used in religious tradition in general. So, yeah, it's from um, Fire Cross. It's chapter one ten called Man of Blood, which is also a biblical reference, by the way. Yeah, they were talking about the five of them are standing in a. Circle around a chunk of granite which Jamie had marked the stranger's grave. It's for Daniel Rawlings, the doctor. Oh, yes, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the doctor whose box ends up with Claire. Yeah, right. Okay. And it says, by common consent, this was not only for the man for the silver fillings, but also for his four unknown companions and for Daniel Rawlings, whose fresh and final grave lay under a mountain ash nearby. Okay, so it's it's for all the time travelers as well. But anyway, so Jamie, it says, I'm just going to read this. So Jamie lifted his head, touched with fire as bright as the blaze by his feet, and looked toward the west where the souls of the dead fly away. And he spoke softly in Gaelic, but all of us knew enough by now to follow along. Thou goest home this night to thy home of winter, to thy home of autumn, of spring, and of summer. Thou goest home this night to thy perpetual home, to thine eternal bed, and to thine eternal slumber. The sleep of the seven lights be thine, O brother. The sleep of the seven joys be thine, O brother. The sleep of the seven slumbers be thine, O brother. On the arm of the Jesus of blessings, the Christ of grace. And the shade of death lies upon thy face, beloved. But the Jesus of grace has his hand round thee. In nearness to the, the Trinity, farewell to thy pains. Christ stands before thee, and peace is in his mind. And so Ian stands close by him, but not touching. The fading light touched his face, fierce upon his scars. And he said it first in the Mohawk tongue, and then in English for the rest of us. Be the hunt successful. Be your enemies destroyed before your eyes. Be your heart ever joyful in the lodge of your brothers. You meant to say it over and over again, a good many times, he said, ducking his head apologetically. With the drums, I, and I thought once would do for now. That'll do fine, Ian, Jamie assured him, and looked then toward Roger. And Roger coughed and cleared his throat, and then spoke the husk of his voice as transparent and as penetrating as the smoke. Lord, make me to know mine end, and the measure of my days what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as a hand's breath, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner, as all my fathers were." And we stood in silence then as the darkness came quietly around us, and as the light, last of the light faded and the leaves overhead lost their brilliance, Brianna picked up the pitcher of water and poured it over the hot pot of coals. Smoke and steam rose up in a ghostly cloud, and the scent of remembrance drifted through the trees. And that scene just struck me as, okay, so we've got Jamie's Celtic prayers, and everybody knows them. And then right. Ian's Mohawk prayer, 
And then Roger quoting Psalm 39, which, you know, for his own religious tradition, quoting scripture is where it's at. It's where the authority right. lies. And, right. and it's this corporate prayer. And so, you know, it's from Claire's perspective, watching her and Jamie, Brianna and Roger and we and standing around this fire, almost offering a sacrifice or having this ritual in which prayer is and the quoting of scripture is part of the service. Um, part well, of- I, and I have to say, too, that they are standing in a circle with five points. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a circle with a pentagram. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, pentagram. So, you know, it, 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 there, there's a number of traditions mm-hmm. here that mm-hmm. say goodbye to their dead. Mm-hmm. That say goodbye to their dead and then move on. And mm-hmm. this, is, this seems to be part of that, that they're standing in the circle saying goodbye to people that they don't know, mm-hmm. but who at least deserve a goodbye. Mm-hmm. And the pouring of the water, I mean, yeah, and the African tradition of libation, where you're yep. nourishing yep. the earth. Yeah, I don't know if that's what Diana was meaning by that, but it, was, it just struck me as this really interesting amalgamation of all the different traditions that we're seeing and hearing in the series. Yeah, yeah. But specifically, what we want to do, um, so Terry was talking about, we wanted to look at, a speci- uh, you know, at, at themes rather than just kind of a survey of the Bible in general yep. and Outlander. So we wanted to start this episode on Genesis, uh, right at pretty much the, not quite the very beginning, not the creation of the world, but Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and all the different references to that narrative within Outlander. Well, so in, in the Bible, in... Genesis, there are really, you know, the two stories of creation. You've got the first one in the first chapter, which is a poem mm-hmm. about the creation of the world. It follows a poetic way of going. It's, it's weird, you know, first we're creating this, and then we're creating this, and then mm-hmm. it's the first day, mm-hmm. and it's good, you know, and, 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 and There's it keeps a rhythm. going like yeah. a poem. Yeah. There's a rhythm to it mm-hmm. and a cadence. And so when you get to the second story of creation, it's much more personable. It's more like a narrative. Mm, hang and, on, uh, there's and, two st- creation stories. Yes, there are. Okay, so I, we kind of blew by that, didn't we? Um, <laughs> so I know somebody out there is going, what? What? Aren't they just one? I'm like, no, they yeah. really are kind of two stories. And, and they I've sort of contradict here. each other, too. Yeah, um, they, they contradict each other quite a bit, actually. So there are there are several different contributors to the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. and it, ha- it happens over many hundreds of years, mm-hmm. these contributions. And, and the people who are contributing this have got different information, they've got different traditions, and they've got different points of view. Different ways of understanding got, the world and cosmology. Correct. Yeah, And yeah. also they've got a different agenda. Yeah. And so so you've got the the first chapter which is the poem, and it pretty much is contained with the, in the beginning, God created the earth, and it goes on until the very end, and God saw that it was good, and then created humankind. But when you get to chapter two, you get a separate story. Mm-hmm. The way I was learning learned about it when I was growing up, well, this is just kind of an explanation of everything in the first story, and yeah. in fact, it's really not. It, 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 it is it's, a its completely own separate, story. separate story, yeah. It's as if somebody had written a story and somebody says well I've got another story mm-hmm. and they just put the two together because they didn't they weren't so contradictory 
that they they couldn't put them together but at the same time Mm -hmm. they really don't match up Mm -hmm. there's a whole lot more detail in the second one and there as as far as humans are concerned Mm -hmm. and the creation of humans and why god creates humans and again it's more of a narrative the first one is more of a a psalm a poetic piece Mm -hmm. explaining it and and the, the bottom line through all of this is that we believe, at least at least the writers of this believe, somehow there was a great other involved in the creation of the universe. Mm-hmm. We get the story of Adam and Eve in the second creation story. We get the story that we are familiar mm-hmm. with of Adam and the tree and the Garden of Eden. We get all of that in the second story. The religious traditions that you and I grew up in, Terry, were around literal interpretation of the Bible. So Adam and, Adam and Eve were real people. Lived Correct. at a particular Without belly time. buttons. Yeah, without belly buttons. They, and they, they had no navels <laughs> because they were created, not birthed. Yeah, the whole chicken yeah. and egg scenario imposed upon the creation of humanity. Yeah. yeah, so this was clearly God created the chicken. That's, <laughs> yeah. And... and this is this is clearly there is an answer to this if you are in an evangelical fundamentalist uh, tradition. Yeah, is that, that is that God creates the chicken? Mm, period. Yeah. and and then there are eggs, and so <laughs> well, and the, yeah, the, the understanding that God created the world already formed and mature, and yeah, that kind of right. stuff, which is how you know evolution is well not believed in. <laughs> the gen- the general understanding on this text is is that. Adam and Eve are prototypes or kind of the they're the first people they're the first people but they're not they're, the first they're not necessarily people who actually lived it's a way of understanding so these mythical mythical sort of stories of framing the world and this is how we understand how you know the value that people have to God and then how evil came into the world how we are to relate to one another as men and women obviously you know gendered and and all that kind of stuff bring you know in the way in which this text was written and has been historically interpreted yeah so Adam and Eve are really archetypes Mm. archetypes that was the word not prototypes archetype (laughs) that was what I was looking for we got it. Yeah. Adam and Eve are really these are, are really these archetypes for mm. how we began mm. and and this time of innocence. We all have this memory of an Eden, mm-hmm. even though Eden has never really truly existed. And I, I think it, it really is just kind of a throwback to there was once a time when I was innocent and that I did not understand and that I did not have responsibility. Or that when, not when things worked the way that. they were supposed to. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or when all we were all provided for. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that was childhood. Not everybody had that experience in childhood. Mm-hmm. But for some people, they, they have this memory of this time. And, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, it was the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Kids today think it's the 1980s. And I'm like, mm-hmm. there was no Garden of Eden in the 1980s. <laughs> I can promise you that. But it's this harkening back to nostalgia, right? Of when, when everything was innocent, when everything was good. So, you know, not not getting political, but this idea of make America great again is that using that same kind of imagery in the sense of let's go back to when things worked the way they were supposed to. Obviously, right. they're, t- they're saying things worked the way they were supposed to when certain people Correct. kept themselves in, you know, and were limited in power or when women stayed at home barefoot and pregnant and when black people lived their didn't own lives separately the and didn't question authority. Yeah. 
didn't question themselves when white men were were in charge. And so Jung, Carl Mm -hmm. Jung, whom we Mm -hmm. talked about a long time ago in the last season, Mm -hmm. Carl Jung would say we are born with these archetypes, just like we're born with the understanding of who a hero is without having to to be told. Mm -hmm. We understand that there was once an Eden, and we believe that there was once a time Mm -hmm. when all things worked, Mm -hmm. and it worked well. So to and want this is a, is just a human thing. It's a very human thing to understand that there once was a time. So, you know, there's always the joke, who was the best pastor you ever had? Mm-hmm. The, the last one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The last pastor you had, not the one you currently have. It was something long ago. And mm-hmm. there's an innate failing in this argument because you can never go back in time. Unless, <laughs> sure of course, unless <laughs> or you're clear. Roger. <laughs> And or any of their kids, mm-hmm. so you, you you we can't really hold on to something that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And for those who are looking to the future, which mm-hmm. also is a fallible argument to mm-hmm. say, you know, the future is definitely going to be so much better. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the end of the nineteenth century; mm-hmm. everybody kept saying the future is going to be so much better. The future is going to be so much better, and that's when we get the the, the world wars the motif of the time machine. Yeah, yeah we we get all of that mm-hmm. at that point. But then World War One starts, and we go, oh wait, you know, <laughs> life is a shit show after all, and we need to comb back on that and maybe start looking at our past. So there's a balance here. Yeah, and we we carry this idea of the Garden of Eden with us, mm-hmm. whether we are Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or, you know, we all have this kind of picture in our soul Mm -hmm. of a time that was more perfect. Yeah, because it's just an innately human thing to believe. I'm also struck by, just kind of as an aside, so we're talking about examples of where we do this. Within the Christian tradition, we talk about the early church like this too. We sure do. That we are trying to always get back to what the early church was doing because that was when everything was perfect. That's when we truly understood what Jesus meant and what we were... Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's not true. And, 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 well, <laughs> let, let's, be, let's be very clear that Jesus was not a part of the first church. No. no Jesus not. was Jewish. <laughs> Jesus was straight up Jewish. He was a Jewish man. Mm. And he was not... Christian. Mm -hmm. It was after Jesus's death and ascension, Mm -hmm. if you believe in the ascension. Mm -hmm. If you don't, it's, you know, we can still have conversation. It's great. You know, one way or the other, after Jesus dies Mm -hmm. and is no longer on this earth. A group of people then formulate themselves into a particular way of being and living and believing that were based on Jesus's teachings. But yeah, perhaps not necessarily what Jesus intended. Well, not necessarily, but it becomes this church. Mm-hmm. And when you tell that people want to hearken back to the church in the book of Acts and mm-hmm. G and, and, you know, what was going on with Paul and Peter and the rest of them. Mm-hmm. But when you point out that in the book of Acts, these folks are communists, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they, they, they pool all their money together and then give it to the apostles to dole out as needed. For the poor. That's when and, things get interesting. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. when things get interesting. I'm like, so is that really what we're going to do here? Yeah. We're going to give you all of our possessions? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and yeah, so that's not capitalist. Yeah. And, yeah, so... it's so, Once again, strike against the literalist, the literal interpretations yeah, of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, so... What, what you've got is, is you've got things that are, you've got things written in a time and a place mm-hmm. that is not our time or place. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to bring it trying to bring it forward Mm -hmm. and trying to understand what the gist of the text is Mm -hmm. and what the writer was trying to say Mm -hmm. to us 
you know, 2,000 years later or 5,000 years later. Mm. One of the cool things about the idea of Adam and Eve and how we understand Adam and Eve as the first peoples is that Diana Gabaldon, in all of, just about all of the books, mm-hmm. ends up comparing Claire and Jamie a lot mm-hmm. to Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yep. There are a lot of references to them in this way. And it makes me kind of wonder if she's trying to say this is a first relationship or this is a first or, or th- this is an intentional relationship for a purpose. A model upon has. which we all should should look to. Yeah, that there's that there's something more going on here mm. than just uh, an accidental time traveler shows yeah, up yeah. And, and and falls for this hunky redhead. Yeah. I, I think that, the, you know, obviously with the prophecy for Brianna, mm-hmm. there's something intentional here. Mm-hmm. There's something more. And, and her comparison to Adam and Eve quite often leads me to believe that there's something more. So maybe just for an example, and we can kind of go, go through it a little bit more in depth. But for an example, this is from Dragonfly and Amber. And it's chapter 36. Yeah, chapter 36. It's the Preston Pans chapter. And yeah. so Claire is sort of dealing with this idea of her corrupting Jamie with her knowing what the future holds and causing him, I guess, to, to consider that he might be able to, or they might be able to change the future in some way. And so she says, it's my fault, I said softly. I touched his face, the thick brows, wide mouth, and the sprouting stubble along the clean, long jaw. Mine, if I hadn't come and told you what would happen, and I felt a true sorrow for his corruption and shared a sense of loss for the naive, gallant lad he had been. And yet, what choice had either of us truly had being who we were? I had had to tell him, and he had had to act on it. An Old Testament line drifted through my mind. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. That's from Psalms, by the way. Yeah. He says, as though he had picked up on this biblical strain of thought, he smiled faintly. Ah, well, he said, I didn't recall Adam's asking God to take back Eve and look what she did to him. And he leaned (laughs) forward and kissed my forehead as I laughed, then drew the blanket up over my bare shoulders. Go to sleep, my wee rib. I shall be needing a helpmeet in the morning. So they call each other, or he refers to their story as an Adam and Eve story. They refer to, or he refers to my wee rib. So Eve is supposedly created out of Adam's rib. And then the reference to Eve as Adam's helpmate or helpmate. So right there, she quotes from Psalms (laughs) and references to the Adam and Eve text. Okay, so the understanding for the last, (laughs) at least the last 2,000 years and probably five, of the second creation story (laughs) and how we get to being the people that we are and in an imperfect place because if we've got this perfect place in our brain Mm -hmm. um, and in our soul that we understand and recognize we are always looking for why we're no longer in that perfect place and so Mm -hmm. for the last many thousand years Mm -hmm. since the patriarchy has been around the blame (laughs) the blame has kind of been laid at Eve's feet yeah. Well, yeah, patriarchal readings certainly understand. The pa- yeah, the patriarchal. The reason even came in, er, evil came into the world was Eve brought it. Yeah, she's the one who fell for the line 
<laughs> it's totally her fault yeah. that that um, if that only she was she'd done X, Y, or Z. Things would have been better. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? She was probably wearing something. Well, she wasn't wearing anything, and that's probably one of the reasons <laughs> that's why where her nakedness she, led. To yeah, her nakedness, <laughs> and she may have had something to drink, and so she. <laughs> Which is why the serpent was able to put one over on her. But if we don't laugh, we'll cry. Yeah, it's still her fault. Mm. And so she brings the apple to Adam. Mm. Adam goes, Doi, I don't know what this is, but Mm. I'll eat it. And then uh, sin is brought into this world. And so it's it's interesting in this quote specifically Mm -hmm. that... Claire accepts that she has corrupted him. Yeah, I mean, and she she did, you know, like she she does corrupt him. I mean, but from what? I mean, so she she takes away a certain amount of innocence, and that's that's kind of one of the things I've I've noticed in this Mm. as we're framing the biblical intersection Mm -hmm. with Outlander is the larger picture is that I'm watching innocence fall away. Yeah. And that's really kind of the, the loss of Eden is the loss of innocence, right? Yeah. And, and, and we all have that moment. This is, this is why it's so archetypal. Mm-hmm. We all have a moment in our life, a definitive moment. We don't necessarily know which moment it is. But we know before the moment we believed in, in something different. Mm-hmm. We believed in a goodness or a, a purpose or we, we, we believed in something innocent. And then it was crushed. And it could have been when we were three. It could have been when we were 23. But whatever happened that crushed us is that loss of innocence. And that is a consistent theme in coming-of-age movies, coming-of-age books. Yeah. And so in, in this, you have to have the corrupter who does this. And sometimes it's necessary. <laughs> yeah, well. To grow yeah, up I, I, because I'm, it's coming-of-age. I have, I mean, I have, I understand Corruption can be understood, you know, kind of positively or not positively, but just kind of matter of factly, or it yeah, can it's be time to grow seen up as, as negative, right? Um, yeah. So, in corruption, more in the sense of tainting or in the sense of contagion or something like that. I also think, as we're talking about this, okay, so the Genesis narrative talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, that the corruption or the, our understanding of evil in the world comes from being able to see it and recognize it to have knowledge and so it's not as if you know we often tell like we said this sort of patriarchal narratives around adam and eve are that it's eve's fault that eve led uh, jamie (laughs) 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 eve led adam into sin that adam would have gone on being perfect and and all that if it hadn't been for eve right Right, yeah. Idiot that he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, which is the greater sin, him eating the, the apple well, and him being and, stupid, and right? And then yeah. we can, you know, we could talk about sort of the bumbling idiot kind of idea of men just don't know any better. And yeah. And why should and we I hold don't... them to any sort of standard because they, they're stupid and they don't know? Yeah, no. If they're stupid and they don't know, it's ridiculous. then why are they in power? Why are they yeah, CEOs? Exactly. Why are they, why do they have the majority of the seats in our, our Senate yeah. and in our House? That, that, that That's... That's a that's a BS kind of answer, and yeah. it's it's not helpful to men. No. It's actually cruel to them, and it's mm-hmm. it's not helpful to society as a whole. But you know, hey, I, it's I just it's just what boys do, right? Okay, but <laughs> okay. anyway, before we go on a rant, <laughs> I think what what Outlander helps us to see in the Outlander story <laughs> is that they are two human beings who have made decisions for themselves on the free and the clear with 
as much knowledge as they had at the time. And yeah, okay, so Claire tells Jamie something he did not know. So she, you know, gives him or corrupts him with a particular knowledge that he didn't have access to otherwise. Right. In the same way, probably, that Eve, you know, introduces knowledge to, to Adam through the, the fruit of the tree. But at the same time, it's still a decision that both Jamie yeah. and Adam make. And it's a decision that even in this text, this particular little bit from Dragonfly and Amber, that Jamie recognizes it and says, ah, well, you know, look what she did to him. But you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to do this together. (laughs) Um, And that I shall be needing to help me in the morning. So we are hand in hand in this process. And and I think... I think the Genesis text says that as well. And just the patriarchal ways of interpreting it don't find that useful. Well, and when I look at the idea that there's this tree with the knowledge of good and evil, that we will be able to recognize evil in the world, we will also be able to recognize good. Yeah. And yeah. I, I find that to be something that I, I'm grateful for. That and we make I our decisions reco- accordingly. We make yes, our decisions for good. Right, and we recognize what is evil in the world. We we know when people are lying. I'm sorry, we do. We do. As, as a as a trained actor, <clears throat> I can tell you the the physicality of somebody lying mm-hmm. because I have to portray somebody on stage, and it can't look like I'm lying. Or if I have to portray somebody on stage who is lying, who's supposed to be hiding it, I have to know these things. Mm-hmm. But but I I can generally look at somebody and tell you. Whether they're lying, unless they're really, 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 really good, well, and most sociopaths people aren't. or psychopaths, and most people yes. are not that. So you no, know, most the average aren't. person. Yeah. So, so this gets into another archetype for God, right? Mm-hmm. This get because ultimately, when we talk about, and we will, I promise, this season, talk about <laughs> time travel and God, and and whether or not God is in charge of all this. You've got this God as a parent saying, "Don't eat of this tree. I don't want you to have to lose your innocence so soon." Mm-hmm. I don't want you to have to know what I know. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a parent, we understand this even if we aren't parents because we, we all nurture and parent something. We all birth something in our lives creatively. We all do something. We have someone that we nurture. And we all want that, whatever that thing is, to enjoy its innocence or live in that, in that state Correct. for as long as it can. To me, that's a kind of another understanding. It's not God going, don't touch it. I put it here for you, but don't touch it. Because yeah. that's entrapment, right? And yeah. I, I think I think that's, that's not really being very kind to a God of love and goodness, mm-hmm. is to say, I'm putting this here, don't touch it, and, you know... But and, that's and the putting... way a lot of people understand God. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and I don't... And think of it that way. No, I think of I it either. as, well, here's here's the garden. And maybe stay away from that one for a while. Mm-hmm. Maybe stay away. Because once you go there, you can't ever come back. Mm-hmm. You will lose this innocence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's poor communication on God's point of view <laughs> here well, in no. this story. We're also reading the text as if it's from God's point of view and not ours. Correct. Too. Right. You've got Eve who gets a really good snow job from a... a snake who tells her the absolute truth he says when you eat this you will know things Mm -hmm. so and and she does and she does Mm -hmm. so when claire falls through the stones she knows things yep 
And, and, and it's, it's completely accidental. She has no clue that she's able to do this. Mm. And then she brings Jamie in on it to help him mm-hmm. and to help them maybe change some things. Mm-hmm. But in end, in the end, it is a corruption. He now knows things he, and he has to go through the next 20 years knowing she's somewhere out there. Yeah. And, and yeah. she has to go through the next 20 years believing she failed him. So let's get into more Adam and Eve stuff. We, we've already yeah. kind of like hit the really heavy stuff. We really have, in this but, conversation. I mean, but we kind of needed to sort of set the framework for the Adam and yeah. Eve. Because these, I mean, that, that question I think would have been sort of looming the whole time if we hadn't, if we hadn't done it. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the other big thing that we see throughout this series is repeated references of kind of when Jamie and Claire are naked and in the woods or in yes. this the savage versus <laughs> the civil idea and that they are at their best in those times when when they are in the wilderness and it's just the two of them and not anybody else it's just the two of them nobody else exists they are there with each other and so there's always this dichotomy within the series of when they return to their true selves when they're able to go back to fraser's ridge when they're able to go back to lollybrock or in preston pants when they go to the woods right after the battle that kind of stuff that that those are the times in which they are able to to be their true selves and and return to that savage but essential part of themselves Right, absolutely. And they, they do this quite often. They will separate themselves out from whatever is going around them. And we they're both extroverted. They both have got duties that they have to be in the community for. But yeah. they purposefully separate themselves out so that they can find strength in each other again. Mm-hmm. And so they go out and they find their, their little bit of Eden. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and we, we see them quite often, particularly after Preston Pans. I'm, I'm remembering that scene Especially well, yeah. Not, so not just at Preston Pans, though. I mean, that's in Dragonfly and Amber, but in the first book. So the reference to them going to the Glade after they've gotten married, and the scene where Jamie takes her back to the stones and she chooses him. But there's the yeah. sort of them in the wilderness kind of idea there too. Also in Dragonfly and Amber, though, the cave scene after their reunion yeah. at Fontainebleau. I, that that cave scene has always made me question because so jamie's the the male's hair is is red and the female's hair is not for those of you who may not have read this Mm -hmm. they they go into the the cave and they they find cave drawings Mm -hmm. in france and then they find a couple who've been dead for thousands of years in the cave and the man has red hair and the woman has dark hair and he's holding her Mm -hmm. obviously there's clearly a parallel there (laughs) and I've always wondered whether or not that was was them but Diana has been very clear that Jamie does not time travel yeah and so I I don't know how it could be them if there was no time travel for him Mm. or how that or how that would work but that scene always made me go what Hmm. And 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 is is it's I would love to sit down and pick Diana's brain to find out exactly why she wrote that scene. I don't know that she's said anything about it. If anybody's ever asked her about it, but certainly when I read that, I was kind of like, hang on a second, yeah. So I've had the same question as you, but by no means I'm willing to be be proven wrong. But um, <laughs> I, the way I have kind of come down and understood that text is that 
love between a man and a woman has existed prior to Claire and Jamie as well as after Claire and Jamie that they in some ways are special and not special as but that this is even a prehistoric thing in the sense of you know people who love each other and who are bound to each other throughout eternity even in their bones well and so the these are the first these are some of the first peoples yeah yeah, you know, so again, so, you know, that archetypal Adam and Eve, right. dead in a cave. Yeah, so they're the first peoples. Yeah. And they, they stumble upon them looking just like the first peoples. There's yeah. a strong parallel. Yeah, and while Jamie and Claire are doing the Adam and Eve thing out in the wilderness, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they stumble across others who look yeah. like them um, yeah. in a cave where there are cave drawings. <laughs> so yeah. it was, you know, it's, it, it is a strong push to them being something special, something different along the lines of there are others that have had their hands touched or by God, mm. their hearts touched by God mm. to, to love each other in this way. Yeah, it's kind of how I've understood it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Jamie can't time travel, but but she has said that that's Jamie's ghost. But ghost is different than a body with bones. It um, is. It is. Yeah, and so there's got to be something... That, that obviously there's something mystical here. Well, there's something mystical about her time travel, certainly. Mm-hmm. But they're they're starting to explain it in some of the later books in a physics way by, by looking at ley lines and magnetic pull and magnetic force and yeah. uh, the DNA of certain of certain people able to tr- travel in time via that way. However, the mysticism of her ghost showing up at at his and Leary's wedding, and she's not even born yet. Mm-hmm. The ghost of uh, him showing up at the beginning of the first book, looking for her. Yeah, there is a sense of mysticism here. The sense that there is a great other who seems to, whether or not this entity, whether we call it God or or something else, mm-hmm. is in control, mm-hmm. is still a question. It's not a question in the first two chapters of Genesis mm-hmm. that there is a God who is in some sense of control, except that God can't really control whether or not adam and eve eat this apple yeah so but again it's a you know it's a text from a religious community trying to explain trying why, to make sense. why they understand the world the way the, the way they do exactly um, exactly yeah going back to some of the other things that sort of pop out as examples of where you know jamie and claire are adam and eve it's funny you know it's it, Voyager, Jamie says that he's in paradise with Claire when they're at the brothel. So even though they're <laughs> not in the wilderness, they it is still just the two of them in that room at the top of the, you know, at the top of the stairs yeah. in the attic. So there's that. But then also, and I'm, I'm wondering, I know they've asked and they've kind of alluded to the fact that it will be, but for Drums and Autumn and this, uh, Drums of Autumn and then this season coming up, the sex scene on the on the rock in the river, where they specifically yeah. referred to themselves as Adam and Eve. So again, there's <laughs> there's that when they find the strawberries at Fraser's Ridge and they identify this is where we want to be. So again, they found their Garden of Eden. Well, yeah, in Drums of Autumn, the the imagery between Eden and them coming into this wilderness mm. is very strong as them being the, the first peoples in this wilderness from Europe. I mean, obviously, they're not the, the first world peoples there. The new world sort of idea, yeah. Correct, correct. They are not the first people there, they're not. clearly. And they You've know got that. Native Americans that are there. But for, for them to be there and carving 
their bit of of wilderness into their little bit of paradise, their home, which is what we've actually talked a lot about home and what it means to be mm-hmm. home in these episodes. That this that this is one of those this is one of those places where they do draw their strength from it, and it's not necessarily idyllic later, but mm-hmm. it starts out being this idyllic place of yeah. these are the untouched unmarred mountains of North Carolina and that the peoples who lived here cared for it and now we're now Claire and Jamie are coming in to to build their own Eden yeah Jamie even refers to about midway through or so in Jumps of Autumn it refers to the land and the gifts at Fraser's Ridge as that which God gave Adam so he makes that connection as well yeah or Diana makes that connection through Jamie, you know, we, it's funny, I, it has occurred to me a couple of times that we, we talk about this text the same way that we talk about the Bible as if there wasn't an author <laughs> and that there wasn't a, a, an intention in that. But at the same time, we do mention the authors of Genesis, uh, you know, we're trying to tell a story in the same way yes, Diana's trying to tell a story. So correct. whether or not we just take the text as the text or whether it's literary criticism in the sense of, you know, what did the author mean by this? We kind of merge back and forth between those. So just an acknowledgement yeah. that we do do that. Right, right. We, we do. I mean, well, and we, we've had this conversation of, mm. of using Diana's text as sacred text, as yeah. a way yeah. of, of finding a deeper truth, something that endures, something that continually gives us something, mm-hmm. that continually gives us a challenge as well as continually gives us grace. While it is not necessarily necessarily a canon <laughs> necessarily and it well I mean there is a canon obviously it is a canon, the, the eight, it is a canon mm-hmm. and it does have a community around it we are putting it in conversation with another canon with another community mm-hmm. around it in this specific episode and, and in the next one because there's a lot more here yeah. to, to to talk about before we move into all the stuff about the Fraser's Ridge being Eden and what happens to Eden, because we all know we lose our innocence, we want to invite you guys to keep this podcast going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, keep us, to keep us giving you this really quality uh, entertainment and quality content. We've got several ways that you can uh, help us maintain our website, help us maintain this podcast and to support us either via Patreon or PayPal or, or there's lots of different ways you can. If you go to our website, which is outlandersoul.com, all one word, outlandersoul.com, uh, you will find a way of donating to this podcast so that if you if you find what we're saying to be meaningful to you, if it is giving you, particularly if it's giving you really good contact, con tent for conversations in your own communities we would really love if you could support us in that way and two i mean i think the way in which we're approaching the outlander text is different from some of the other groups that are out there and i know those groups are important um those podcasts are important i, I listen to them as well so well and they for- they inform us yeah. yeah they totally they inform us but they're supported by fans and we're hoping that that you will do that too because this isn't this isn't free <laughs> so you know for the website to run each year we pay a fee for that all the social media stuff that we do and some of the ads that we do in order to reach new listeners the amount of time that we spend doing these episodes <laughs> is so much more than just the time you spend listening that terry right now is doing all the editing we would love to be able to pay somebody to do some editing for us to free up more time to do other things other episodes and other outlander based 
work, your contributions just help make that happen. And we understand that if you can't do a contribution, but totally. there there are other ways to give back. So <laughs> um, share us on all your social media. Whenever we've got a podcast, get that out there. Put it on other groups. Because if you're listening to this, you probably belong to several other Outlander community groups on Facebook mm-hmm. and, and Instagram, and you're following people who do this as well. Mm-hmm. Share us with them. Go to iTunes and rate us. Give us a rating if you like what we're doing or even if you don't just please give us a rating we would love to have that because that actually boosts our our traffic on itunes and then we've got us is it radio public and radio public and stitcher both pay us per listen so if you listen to us um via some other way but you're able to listen to us via radio public and stitcher we get a few pennies every time somebody listens because of their own ad content and so if that's if that's possible then then that'd be great too yeah drive people to our website mm-hmm. the more traffic we have there the more we're able to get other ads actually on our website mm-hmm. as well and that provides us with a small income too Yeah. Uh, And maybe it's worth saying this too. I don't know that we've really said it because we've been focused so much on fans of Outlander and we expect that most of our listeners are Outlander fans, obviously. But we've heard from a couple people who are saying, you know, we haven't finished the series or we're not particularly fans of Outlander, but we are fans of of your approach and what you're doing. And so we're recommending this to to clergy and to, you know, to other people (laughs) who might be interested in, in the approach of, of addressing a contemporary fiction text and in what is an important way we think. So yeah, yeah, feel free to recommend us to anybody you think might be interested, not just fellow Outlander fans. As narrative theologians and Mm -hmm. as feminist theologians, we actually do this to other texts too. Yeah, it's yeah. just that we choose to do the, this podcast about Outlander yeah. because we are such huge fans of it <laughs> and because it's such a rich text. So Eden doesn't yeah. last forever. And no. we know this because as grown-ups, we've all had the moment where we lose our innocence to some degree, whether it's the realization that the world doesn't work the way we thought it would work or mm. through some act of violence or mm. through tremendous loss as in a death or a job loss mm. or... And, you know, the, the idea that we thought God was going to save us from all that, save us from ourselves, mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen. Somehow yeah. the serpent slithers into Eden. I need to call out a friend of mine on this. <laughs> before, before we get into the serpent and all of the symbolism that the Christian and the Jewish tradition has around the serpent, yeah. a friend of mine, Stephen Brandt, who is an animator here in Richmond, he did this really great animation having to do with other ancient serpent mythology and actually in some tribes in africa the serpent is actually a really good image is a Mm -hmm. is a really good guy Mm -hmm. the the world begins this way there's there there's a person on a raft and a bird and something else and and none of them know where to go because there's no land and it's the serpent that dives deep into the water and brings up all the land to create the land. I I find it really fascinating how in much of my tradition and in much of my uh, culture, Mm -hmm. I have been indoctrinated with the idea that serpents are evil and they're equated with evil. Mm. Whereas in other completely different cultures with completely different traditions, that's not the case at all. So I just wanted to call that out a little bit before we get into the all snakes are bad. Yeah, Yeah, I'm thinking too of the Aboriginal mythology that Rainbow Serpent is a deity that, you know, is a creator 
creator force, creating force. And so as we talk about that, just kind of, yeah, being aware of different yeah, cultures yeah. have different understandings, certainly. Absolutely. So we wanted just to, to say that this, what we're talking about specifically here, though, is serpent in context of, and in comparison with the canon of the Torah. Within the Christian tradition, we talk about the serpent as being Satan, but yes, we it's do. not in the text it doesn't refer to the serpent as being satan at all the serpent is just the serpent and it's just been interpreted differently over the course of time but yeah and and that's not a literal interpretation no no it's not a literal interpretation at all so yeah this idea of paradise destroyed or paradise lost is also something that we see in outlander so you know we've got Paradise in its original form with Jamie and Claire in the wilderness or when they're when they're together and it's just them. But, you know, the constant sort of ideas, well, you know, Claire's saying that she's corrupted Jamie, so that's a paradise lost sort of idea. Well, and that's that's on the lead up to Culloden too. So you've yeah. got I mean that's that's obvious that paradise is about to be lost. In yeah. Scotland as well. But yeah. it's interesting. So part of the Genesis text when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden uh, when they have lost paradise, there's this image of Michael, the archangel, guarding the garden. And there's a couple yes. people. Like Jamie is <laughs> described in Voyager. Claire describes Jamie as the archangel, Michael, guarding <laughs> virtue. Guarding Marsley, yes. Yeah, Marsley's <laughs> virtue. Her innocence <laughs> is being guarded. Mother Hildegard in Dragonfly and Amber. Clara refers to Mother Hildegard as an angel guarding Eden. With Mother Hildegard, I always think of L'Hôpital Ange, the Hospital of Angels, mm-hmm. and Claire's loss there, her loss yeah. of faith. You pointed out in the work that we've been doing in the research here that mm. Claire wrestles with serpents. Mm-hmm. in her dreams prior to losing faith. I find the, the parallel there of her losing faith, obviously, mm. with Mother Hildegard being the angel guarding it is, mm-hmm. is really quite striking. So the flight from Eden chapter in Voyager when Claire leaves Lallybrock after finding out that Larry was married to Jamie and, you know, all that. That little bit of paradise is gone. <laughs> yeah, the bubble has been burst. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yes, lots um, happened in 20 years, Claire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Things are not as they as they once were. Or as they seemed. Yeah, or as they seemed, yeah. So Fraser's Ridge um, becomes kind of that place of Eden. It, it's almost as if Fraser's Ridge is its own character. Yeah, well, like Lallybrock was its own character. Character, um, yeah. And so Lallybrock being the paradise lost, he mm-hmm. had to give it up at the end of mm-hmm. um, Dragonfly and Amber, of it not being his home anymore in Voyager and then finding a new home in Claire Mm -hmm. and then finding a new paradise with her Mm -hmm. and then finding a place that they can call home an Eden in Fraser's Ridge it kind of takes a place as as the character of their Eden and to a certain point it is its own it has its own innocence Mm -hmm. because the land is is productive and it gives yeah but but then things happen in mm. a breath of snow and ashes. Yeah, Fraser's Ridge becomes corrupted to some extent. Yeah. Right. So as the war is starting to build and as the battles are starting to build around it, you know, we're heading into war, which, you know, spoils all Edens. It, it's a loss of innocence, widely a loss of innocence. You end up with this, this relationship between Claire and Malva. And mm. Malva is very much the snake yeah, <laughs> very much the snake, and dies, or is found dead, in her garden. No more can Claire go out in her garden 
mm-hmm. safely. I, I, I look towards the, you know, later time she goes back. She can't go to the garden. She has a hard time actually going out there because that is where she found yeah. Malva. And, of course, she's blamed for the murder. I had never really thought about that. But, that yeah, that's true. Paradise gets completely spoiled in that way. The idea of, of the loss of the beauty of Fraser's Ridge with the marring of Malva's blood. It's very poetic. So then there's also this section in An Echo in the Bone where Roger has this kind of same conversation that Claire has about corrupting Buckley, right? Roger's wondering whether or not he should tell Buckley that Galus is his mom. It's written from Roger's perspective. And so he's thinking to himself, it wasn't the tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, after all. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we kind of, you know, we're talking about a little bit earlier. Right, right. Roger says, knowledge might be a poison gift, but it was still a gift, and few people would voluntarily give it back, which was just as well, he supposed, since they couldn't give it back. And that has <laughs> been his point in the discussion, because he was arguing with Bree over whether or not Buckley should be told. That's interesting that, you know, he he is referencing that that conversation, too, about whether or not Buckley will be corrupted by knowing that story. And, you know, what good would it do him to mm-hmm. to have this information? I, I look at the television show a little bit in Dragonfly and Amber because this doesn't mm-hmm. happen in the book. They don't tell Myrta in the book. No, Myrta never knows who Claire Myrta is. Myrta never knows what. who Claire is or what she mm-hmm. is and, and how mm-hmm. she does what she does. They protect that knowledge very carefully. Yeah. A, because she could be uh, thrown into a thieves hole again like she was at Cranesmere and burned at the stake or killed for any number of reasons or used against her and this is this is an important point for frank as well because he tells brie be very careful guard this knowledge guard Mm -hmm. what you are because it can be used against you and there are people who would use this for evil yeah for their own ambitions for their own purposes this is the the good thing of knowing having the knowledge Mm-hmm. between good and evil is that you you learn to recognize folks who are after their own agenda and folks who are really there to help you so Murta in the television series does get the information and it was a wise choice by the writers to do that because yeah, three so. is always a much more a much stronger dynamic in a conversation or in a, a story than two and otherwise too Marta would just be kind of looking like a chump the rest of the rest of the season you wanted him to be in on the story because you wanted him to be fully supportive and fully understand why he is doing what he and, does yeah and Claire and Jamie look bad for not telling him yeah. and so yeah so it, it, it's a it's a better thing for the series to have mm-hmm. that continuing thread throughout of somebody knowing but mm-hmm. in the books they don't tell Jenny. They don't tell Ian. They don't tell anybody until much later in the books when it's important. Jenny doesn't really fully grasp it either because it, how do you grasp How do you grasp like it? Yeah, it, it's almost beyond comprehension. The fact that even Jamie has really grasped it, it's only because he's seen her sort of start to disappear through the stones, which, you know, just as an aside, Roger has this conversation, this, you know, kind of a general Bible and Outlander thing where Roger's like, blessed are yeah. those who see and believe, but Blessed are those who haven't seen and also believe. And I think that's even the name of the chapter is Blessed are those who... So this kind of idea, Jamie's seen it. So of course he believes it. But he believed her before he saw it too. So he's kind of able to do both of those things, um, which is great. But Yeah, and 
Claire has had so many near misses. Her daughter is raped. Her husband is raped. So many people in in the story are raped. We talked about that in the, yeah. in the sexual violence episode. And so for Claire, there there is a loss there as well. And while that's talked about in the other episode, I think that's also kind of a loss of innocence and a, a loss that Eve feels in in this that you know she she now walks around with this even in her paradise she she carries this with her i mean jamie loses his paradise several times he he loses his innocence many many times through the series after he he spanks claire and realizes this is not the wife that he thought he was going to be getting <laughs> you know <laughs> starting there <laughs> it's a continual loss of innocence but in return it's a knowledge mm. you you receive. He yeah. now knows women are, are different mm. than than he expected them to be. He now yeah. has greater knowledge after being raped. In no way is that does that equate what happens to him, but he's stronger on the other end of that because mm-hmm. of Claire and because mm-hmm. of his ability to come back. But it, he's still harshly marred and he's corrupted from it. There's a continual like setup of a, an Eden, but there's a a continual loss of innocence as well as a continual gaining of wisdom. And mm-hmm. so Claire is moving towards that white-haired La Dame Blanche, that, that white woman, that the woman with the, the crown of white hair who will be the wise woman. Coming into the fullness of her power. Returning yes. to her innocence in some ways, yeah. Yeah, yes. But she will she will get to that place, but it's going to cost her. It's... It, it, it kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings, Gandalf the Grey, mm-hmm. what he goes through. To and on the Gandalf other the end, White. he becomes Gandalf the White. Yeah. yeah, It's a passage, the death of one thing and the birth of another. There's this play called The Diary of Adam and Eve. Mm. And it's based on, uh, Mark Twain wrote two short stories, one called Eve's Diary and the other called Adam's Diary, I believe it is. Somebody turned it into a play. And I did, I saw the play when I was in high school and then I did the play when I was in college. And I played Eve. I have a blog and the title of the blog comes from that. It's called Rage for Explaining and in the script, because the script is so good. Mark Twain is so good in the script. She has a rage for explaining. Who Eve does, I Eve, guess. Eve, yeah. does. Eve has a rage for explaining. She won't stop. She won't shut up, which is why I'm good at podcasting, <laughs> because <laughs> Terry just can't shut up. I need to explain. And so my stories go on and on, like this one, for instance. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so... I use my power for good, not evil. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a super talker. I have a rage for explaining. Uh, So in in the story of Adam and Eve and, and Eve's diary, Adam is in the garden by himself, and he's perfectly content and happy naming all the animals. And then this new thing shows up, and it's Eve. Hmm. And he can't stand her. He, she, she is in everything. This was his man cave. This, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what's yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's totally what this is. Hey, what's and, that called? And you know, hey, hey. do you want me to do this? Hey, let's go do this. And so Eve is really thrilled to be there, and that she's got a companion, and mm-hmm. she keeps trying and poking, and then she keeps trying to change the area and make it better, <laughs> because you know, again. They, in in Mark Twain's version of this, uh, Eden is pretty much a man cave. And so she goes and she starts changing things around, renaming all the animals, really questioning everything he does, and he can't stand it. 
<laughs> my partner would really relate to this story. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I, it's, 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 a br- it's a brilliant play. Yeah. But what happens is the serpent is introduced. There's only three characters in the entire play. It's Adam, Eve, and then the serpent. The serpent comes in and says, hey, you know, it's, you, you, need to, you will grow closer to him if you eat of this fruit. Mm. And so she does. And she does it so that she can be with him. Mm. And she gives him the apple. Or, and, and, and in the play, it is a bucket full of apples. She just kind of walks in with the bucket full of apples, hands him one, and he eats it. Because he is the doof in the play. What happens after he does that is that all hell breaks loose. Animals start killing animals. There's storms. And they have to depend on each other. So the second half of the play is them realizing that they need each other now. Yeah. And it's only when he realizes that he needs her that he falls for her and would not want to go back. What he lost is the man cave, yes, and this idea of Eden. But what he gains is a partner. Yeah. And, and what he gains is so much more. They, they end up having children throughout. He doesn't know what they are. He thought they were fish. You know, <laughs> she tries to throw it in the water. <laughs> she's, she's just like, no, no, no. So she, it, it's, it's her schooling him on how to have a relationship mm-hmm. and how to be in relationship. And Eden then is reformed and it's changed. The, the rules have changed in their world now. And they have changed with it and have found each other. That sounds familiar, hey? Yeah, it does. So the, the rules change in this. Mm-hmm. And they change all the time. And each time they change, you lose a little something, but you gain a little something more. Claire and Jamie never actually lose each other. There are a couple of moments where the thought is there that they've lost each other. But they never they never get to the point where they lose each other. We're going to get to that point. Diana warns us mm. that there will be a point where they will not be with each other. I, I don't know how this is going to all work out. Diana, call us. We're willing to talk to you about this. <laughs> you know, at some point, they, they die. And but I don't. There is that I, I, I haven't. Un, I haven't understood those texts or her saying that as they're going to lose each other. But they are going to die. They're, they're they are going to die. Human. This is their story. Yeah. It, it will end when when they do. Yeah. But whether or not that's losing each other, I'm not sure. It could be a whole you know Wuthering Heights thing where <laughs> where where they where they meet each other in some ghostly afterlife or something. Well, you know, um, G- yeah. Jamie's ghost kind of seems to Comes maybe to point to that for yeah. it to all start back over again. <laughs> Which is yeah. a time travel conundrum, and so yeah. we will we'll talk about that in another in another episode. Yeah. Um, when we talk about Paradise Lost, the work of is it John Donne, I believe. We we really yeah. talk about Paradise Gained in that. Mm. Well, and he and, wrote a sequel called Oh yeah, Paradise Regained. Paradise Regained. Mm-hmm. So, but but we rarely talk about that. Yeah, we rarely talk about what we've gained in John Milton, not John um, Donne, by the way. Well, no, we, we don't really agree with his theology. Um, but it's, yeah. but the the idea that I'm um, sorry, my dog is snoring again. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is still outside. She's barking. done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so we should probably wrap this up because your dog is done. <laughs> if, if you guys have noticed any other Adam and Eve references, or mm. if we've kind of blown your mind from the beginning of this. <laughs> With, oh, by the way, there are two stories. You might still be staggering over that. And you need to take this in pieces. Please, please, mm. please email us. Yeah, let us know Send what us you a think. voice message. Send us something on our social channels. Talk to us. Mm. We would love to hear from you and would love to use your feedback as a part of this program. So this uh, 
this concludes this episode and we'll be back with you with kind of part two so we've got the bible and outlander section but we want to look specifically at the song of solomon in outlander so and uh, if you don't yeah. know it's 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 in the wisdom chapters so it's <laughs> psalms proverbs song of solomon and if you didn't realize that was there you can blame <laughs> you the leaders of your church yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we'll spend some time on that in the next episode and we'll see you then All right. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We would really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click the support us at outlandersoul.com. There are lots of ways to donate. Every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, and ideas because part of the work that we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. So we're really interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. So please send us your thoughts through our website, email, voice memos, or social media, and follow the links on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or via our website, www.outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you again in two weeks. See you later. See ya.